Scripture reading this morning comes from Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was talking to a friend yesterday, and she asked me what we were preaching over, and I said, oh, we're doing the Minor Prophets. And her immediate response was, why? Like, why? And, you know, maybe after you hear that text, you're kind of like, uh, daughter Jerusalem, like, what, what is happening here? Um, actually, this, the, the Minor Prophets, we, we've been going through it for this entire series, and we're asking the question, like, where do you see Jesus in the Minor Prophets? Because Jesus himself says that all the scriptures are about him, that they point towards him, that he fulfills them, that they're anticipating a Messiah, uh, that he would be. And so we've been looking at each of the minor prophets, and this week we're on Zephaniah. And I would argue that Zephaniah chapter 3 and one of those verses we just read um, are probably one of the most important verses that has guided me in my life, especially in the last 20 years as I've thought about what it really means to live into the reality that God wants us to know that He is our mighty warrior, that He comes to save us, that He rejoices over us with singing. That he doesn't want to spend, the, spend his, our time on earth experiencing his rebuke. He actually wants us to experience his peace. And I think my hope is, as we sort of make our way through Zephaniah today, that you leave thinking about this reality. That the God of heaven and earth wants you to know that he loves you. That he desires to be a part of your life. That his desire is not that you would live under shame, but that you would live under the protection of him, and you would think of him as your mighty warrior who saves, who rejoices over you, who quiets you with his love, who sings over you. Who sings over you? Now, I'm not talking about when you're embarrassed at your birthday and you're at Lupe's and they put a sombrero on your head or whatever. I mean, like, are there people in your life that they're just so glad you're there? I have a couple friends like that um, here in the church. Usually they're less than four years old and they run up to me and they are like just so excited to see me them and my dog Bentley you know who is God wants you to know he rejoices over you he quiets you he wants to engage with you in such a way that you experience the hope that is yours by trusting in him as your mighty warrior you know Zephaniah is a letter for you from God to shape you at the deepest parts of who you are how good of a letter writer are you? I am not a very good letter writer. I bet there's less than five people in here who are thinking, I just love that letter you wrote to me. You know, I, I don't write a lot of letters, but I found some interesting letters. One was by Johnny Cash. He wrote it to June, his wife. He said, happy birthday, princess. We get old and get used to each other. We think alike. We read each other's minds. We know that the other wants, we know what the other wants without asking. And sometimes we irritate each other a little bit and maybe... Sometimes we take each other for granted, but once in a while, like today, I meditate on it, and I realize how lucky I am to share my life with the greatest woman I've ever met. You fascinate me and inspire me. You influence me for the better. 
You're the object of my desire, my number one earthly reason for existence. I love you very much. Happy birthday, Princess John. Or this letter, written by Gerald Ford to his wife, um, that he and his kids wrote after she found out she was diagnosed with cancer. Dearest Mom, no written words can adequately express our deep love for you. We know how great you are, and we and Dad will try to be as strong as you are. Our faith in you and God will sustain us. Our total love for you is everlasting. We will be at your side with our love for a wonderful mom, Jerry. Or this card, and this is kind of more my speed. There's this card you can buy probably at Walmart or somewhere, and it has cheeses all over it, and it has these little comments. It says, I know it's cheesy, but you are brilliant, you know, Bria. You're so much better than cheddar. I love holding your hands when your parmesan mine. And never again do you provolone, have to provolone. Why do letters matter? Do you know why letters matter? Because letters, when someone writes you a letter like what Johnny Cash wrote or what you know, Gerald wrote, his wife, or that cheesy card that you might get from a friend, is their emotion and their interest in you and their affections for you and their desires for you can be revisited and are, you know that this is how they would articulate it to you. That's why letters are so special. You can go back and re-experience their love for you, re-experience their thoughts for you and re-enter into what they were thinking when they took a pen to the paper and they were thinking of you and they wrote this. That is what God's word is for you. Zephaniah chapter 3, the Lord is with you, a mighty warrior who saves, who takes great delight in you, who will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. God wants you to have those words resonate in your heart deeply. And it's not just because it's like module six in the training for knowing God. He wants you to have it because you need to know that God loves you that much. You need to experience it. Saying important things to one another is significant. Hearing what God wants you to have in your heart is absolutely soul-shaping. You know, Zephaniah and his words that we have here are meant to be carried with us. They're significant. I have a friend who told me about every night when he puts his kids to bed, he says Zephaniah 3 with them before they go to sleep. They say these words. He wants them to remember that God is mighty over them while they're terrified in their beds for the monsters under the bed or whatever. He wants them to remember that when they've made mistakes that day, that actually God's goal is not for you to live in shame. He wants to be your protector. He wants to be the one who renews you. He wants to be the one who sings over you. And he says this with his kids every night. And recently he was telling me that his daughter now will say, let me say it first, and then you say it. And so she says it, then they say it together. And the reason that's significant is it's shaping how we think about who God is. What shapes you? You know, how do you think about who God is? Accomplishments shape us, they give us confidence. Failures shape us, they make us embarrassed or we doubt ourselves. What really shapes you? I saw recent drone footage of a bunch of surfers having a blast and a 15-foot shark beneath them just swimming around under them. That shapes how I think about surfing in the future, right? What shapes you? God wants you to have these words to shape your soul at the core of who you are. You need this. This is water for you. To think a little bit about the context of Zephaniah, because what we've been doing in this series is, like, you know, Zephaniah is only three chapters, and so I'm going to kind of address different verses throughout. Um, but to give you some context, here we are again. 
And the people of God are fearful of the Babylonians coming in and taking over, of the Babylonian captivity. And Zephaniah gives, his, gives the people this message from the Lord. And there's, really, there's kind of two elements to it. The day of the Lord, or the day of wrath, and the new day, the day of restoration. The day of wrath, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, and the new day, the day of restoration, the day of hope, the day of what comes next that's good. And Zephaniah is wanting the people to realize that they don't get a choice, that this is, this is where we're headed. There's a day of this coming, and then there's this other day that God's promising. And where do you stand in the midst of it? He's asking them to consider it because the Babylonians are coming, and to characterize their relationship, and you can see this in Zephaniah chapter 1, they were complacent towards God. He was searching throughout Israel, and what he finds as he looks through the people are people who are either disinterested or just kind of apathetic altogether about who God is. And so they're desperate, and you would think they would be running to the one who is what? Their mighty warrior, the one who comes to save them, that they would hear God's word and cling to it. So this morning, we're going to talk about those two ideas, the day of the Lord and this new day. But the real thing I hope you take away from it as we reflect on it is that you would hear God's voice to shape you in the midst of your life in this moment, like Zephaniah 3, to actually be transformed by that voice above all the other voices. There's so many voices that are there to influence what we think and how we operate. God has given you his word to shape you at the core. And so the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, let's start with that. Zephaniah calls this day a day of wrath. If you ever listen to Mozart's Requiem, uh, there's a song in there called Dies Irae, and um, it's from a Franciscan monk. And this is, this is the, the poem that Mozart used for his requiem. It says this, Day of wrath, day of anger, it will dissolve the world in ashes. As foretold by David and Sybil, great trembling there will be when the judge descends from heaven to examine all things closely. Isn't that exciting? And you know, it's like, that's really intense. Day of wrath, day of anger, God's going to judge. He's going to see everything. This concept of the day of the Lord. You know, in one sense, it's terrifying. I mean, can you imagine the idea that every single text message you've ever sent, every thought you've ever had, every inclination of your heart at all is completely laid bare and seen for everybody here at Grace Presbyterian Church to look through like a big file cabinet? Can you imagine? And yet God actually sees into our hearts that clearly. He sees everything. And the people during the day here are struggling to believe that that's actually true. Look at Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 8 and 10. On that day the Lord's, of the Lord's sacrifice, I'll punish the officials and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. And on that day I'll punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who will fill the temple with their gods and with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Will you live in the market district? All you merchants will be wiped out. All you trade who trade for silver will be destroyed. At that time, I'll search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. When you think about God and you think about our world as it is, is your response to how the world is and who God is, he's not going to do anything good or bad to the world. God has no interest in sifting through the complicated nature of our world. He's just distant. The Lord has a different narrative for us. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on that day of the Lord will be bitter. The mighty warrior will shout, the mighty warriors will shout battle cries. So again, what's going on here is the people of God are being warned, hey, the Babylonians are coming, 
And God's not stopping them. It's going to be difficult. They're going to come in, and how are you going to respond? And as the officials are participating in it, the people who are in the marketplace are participating in ignoring who God, like everybody's involved. Zephaniah represents this last warning before it happens, and what we read about the day of the Lord is that it's both universal and comprehensive. He will judge all things. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 2, I will sweep everything away off the face of the earth, declares the Lord. There's nothing that will not be seen. And it's comprehensive, chapter 3, verse 8, which says this, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day, the day I will stand up to testify, I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather your kingdoms, to pour my wrath on them, and my fierce anger, the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Like, we hear that and we think to ourselves, how are we supposed to process the reality that God sees all things? Now for the people of Israel, they're thinking, good, that means you're going to destroy everybody else. And God's saying, I'm looking at your heart, and I want you to think about where you are. Where are you with me? If everything was laid bare about who you are before me, and I expected you to answer for it, how would you fare? What are we supposed to do with that? You know, the the people of God are being challenged to actually trust God in the midst of incredible difficulty. And God turns it on them, and he says, that's all true, and yet here's what I want you to hear. Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel, be glad and rejoice in your heart. The Lord's taken away your punishment. He's turned back on your enemy. He's turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you, and never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion, do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord, your God, is with you. So do you see what's happening there? God is being honest with them about who they are. He's, been, he's addressing the reality of, of their complacency about who he is, how they've ignored him, how they've even lived into ignoring his promises and his direction, and then he's also offering some kind of way out. That there's a mighty warrior who comes to save. Now, why is there a day of the Lord? There's a day of the Lord here, of course, but ultimately read in the scriptures in Revelation, there's a day of judgment. Why is there a day of judgment? Because God is righteous. And one day he is going to lay everything out as it truly is so that he can bring in this promised grace that he offers. There's nothing under the sun the Lord does not see. And in one sense, that's terrifying for us because that means we're laid bare. But in the other sense, it means that God's actually going to answer to our heart's deepest wrongs. I mean, have you ever been wronged? Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be falsely accused. Have you ever been falsely accused before? Has anyone ever said anything about you that's not true? Listen to John chapter 14, or Mark chapter 14. Jesus is standing before the high priest, and they say, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed one? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand, the mighty one, and coming on the clouds in heaven. The right hand, the judge, you'll see him coming. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death, and then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Do you see how unjust that is? Jesus, the one who's righteous, is falsely accused. Have you ever experienced being falsely accused? Have you ever been accused and gotten away with it? You know, in this moment, Jesus is falsely accused. It is true that he is innocent of the charges, and yet Jesus receives it. Why? Because he becomes the one who's punished. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin 
to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God judges everything. He sees things as they are. What does he do with the fact that Israel, when God's honest with them, is as far from him as they possibly can be? He provides a way for them to be delivered. He sends the mighty warrior. Okay, God's people also hear in this that God's going to judge other people. Judge the Philistines, judge Moab, judge Ammon, judge Cush, judge Assyria, and they kind of celebrate it. But then God looks at his own people and says, what about you? There's no one who accepts correction. You know, one of the hardest things for us is to own up to the fact whenever we're wrong that actually maybe we have something to learn from that. Have you ever experienced that? What's, what's the issue? Well, the issue is, is that there's not a way out. God always provides a way out if we're under judgment, if we're under a failure, if we're in the midst of an experience. He provides a way for us to experience His grace in the midst of that. God's people in chapter 3, verse 2, her officials were within her are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are unprincipled. They're treacherous. The priests profane the sanctuary. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning he dispenses justice, and every new day he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. The people of God are ignoring his promises and God's being righteous with them, and yet they are far from his heart. And he invites them into experiencing something greater, the new day. If it's actually true that this judgment's coming, and how are they going to fare? Not well. And so what does he offer? He offers the new day. In that Zephaniah 3 passage, on that day he will say to Jerusalem, do not fear. Here it is again. The minor prophet is reminding us that God's provision to us is always a way out. That he provides grace in the midst of difficulty. That the ultimate goal of what God is doing is not to shame us, even in judgment. You know, I once had a friend who, uh, when I worked at a church in St. Louis, and um, we both were asked to lead worship for one of the Sunday school, or one of the Sunday mornings, it was for the high school students, and I played guitar, and, and he helped lead worship, and we got about four songs in to the worship service, and all of a sudden I see Dr. Benton standing in the back of the sanctuary with his black robe on looking at me, and I could tell, like, something was happening, and it was not good, and it seemed like it was my fault. And so I'm just kind of kind of keep going and keep playing the guitar, and I kind of keep doing my thing. And he's just standing back there, like, not saying anything, but speaking volumes, like, 100 feet away. And, I, and if, you know, if you knew Dr. Benton at all, if you knew him, like, back when I was in seminary, he was kind of a terrifying guy. Wonderful, mentored me, I loved him, but, like, I never wanted to be on his bad side. And he stared at me, and then after four, you know, after we did our songs and stuff, I kind of sat down, and I was like, I don't know what's happening. And he kind of walked by and looked at me. I was like, okay, I have done something horrible, and I didn't know what it was. On Monday, I get to, I get to church. We walk into the uh, office, and he goes, Bradley, in that southern draw accent that only he can do well, will you come in my office for a minute? Well, sure, Dr. Benton. Be, sure. What do you need from me? Let, let's have a conversation. I walk in. He goes, you're going to need to sit down. I was like, oh, Okay, Dad. Like, you know, I was in trouble in that moment. He said, here's the deal. None of those songs that y'all were doing were songs that we had planned, and so no one had any of the words. Did you notice that, like, almost nobody was singing with you? And I was like, I did not notice. I just noticed you in the back staring at me, communicating that I was doing something wrong, right? 
He was actually pretty gracious about it, but I was kind of shaken by it. And his point wasn't to drive me into the dirt. His point was, hey, like, you know, we're all in this together. We're, let's do this thing we're, we're doing. But I had really made a mistake, and he can, kind of provided a way out simply. You know, whenever you're confronted, there's a difference between God approaching you and saying, here's the thing, you're not a perfect person. You've made mistakes, and you need to live under that shame until I feel like you have sort of felt it deep enough, and then we can kind of work on you experiencing my grace. That's not God's response. God's response to us in the midst of failure is for us to run to this verse, to hear his words, do not fear. I am with you. I'm your mighty warrior. I take great delight in you. I mean, have you ever thought about God's approach to you, even in your weakness and failures, as his ultimate goal being this, that you would be glad and rejoice, that you would hear God when he says, I've taken away your punishment. As we read in Mark chapter 14, Jesus received punishment he didn't deserve so that we would not receive punishment we do deserve. That he became sin for us. Now the question is not, are you perfect? I know that you're not, because the human heart is not. The question is not, are you going to make mistakes? The question is, when you are in need of God's grace, when you're in need of his mercy, do you know where to run? And God is inviting you to run here, to his promises. I don't want you to fear my judgment. I don't want you to live in fear. I want you to know these things. I'm your mighty warrior I come to save. I take great delight in you. I don't want to remind you that I'm not going to spend eternity rebuking you. In fact, I'm inviting you into an experience where I'm dancing over you with singing. Do you really believe that that is God's posture towards you this morning? That's God's posture. It's not, it's not a what if. if. This is God's posture towards you. That you would so experience His grace that you would be able to experience love from Him that you might learn to express that love towards others. Now, how do you know if you're not living in light of this? How do you know if you're living under the shame God or you're living under this God who loves you? Some examples. One thing. When something bad happens, is your first thought to think, well, what did I do to deserve this and why is God doing it to me? You know, that's really not God's MO. It's not God's desire to kind of play chess with your life and shame you, you know, if you do something wrong. That's actually not his approach. There are natural consequences. This is God's approach. Don't fear. I'm one who saves. I'm one who is gracious. I'm one who takes delight in you. If you're living in such a way where you always assume it's God who's just sticking it to you, that's not the God of the Bible. So that's one way to know. Another way to know, when something bad happens in someone else's life, is this one of your first thoughts? Hmm, wonder why they deserve that. You know, like things are going tough in their family. It must be bad parenting. Like, I've judged that they're bad parents or something. Or something went tough with their job. Oh, what did he do? You know, actually, God's approach to us is grace. And if you've experienced God's grace, you learn to express that grace toward others. Does God want you to feel shame about feeling shame? No. He wants you to feel freedom. He wants you to feel his grace. He wants you to feel his mercy because he comes to you as a mighty warrior which is good news for us god responds to us like this gives us these verses because you need this it's not your natural inclination your natural inclination is to want to visit judgment kind of like on the philistines and the the moabites and the others that the people of god are kind of like yeah they deserve that god's like no i'm interested in your heart where are you with me 
Are you so basking in my love, they're experiencing my grace, or are you giving in to this something else? You know, today, October 31st, it's Reformation Day. It's Halloween. Like, it's Reformation Day, it's Halloween, right? It's both. Um, Reformation Day, since we're Presbyterian, I guess I'll mention it for a sec. It's kind of fun. Um, you know, it's kind of the beginning of the Reformation. Luther nails his 95 theses on a door, and it sort of sparks this thing that happens in the church where we become a people who are centered on grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone and God's glory alone and his word alone is kind of our fundamental things. And it's a day that marks kind of who we are. And that, this scripture is talking in much the same way. You know, if you, if you trust in God's grace, this makes sense. If you have faith in what Jesus has done for you, this makes sense. If you believe that all things are for God's glory, then you understand why he's the mighty warrior, that he, why he's able to turn away punishment. If you believe in his word, then you will run here to have your soul shaped above all else. You know, tonight, as you sort of see people going around sharing candy and celebrating Halloween, um, you know, it's an opportunity for us to be gracious to people, to be gracious to people who don't deserve it, to be gracious to people who God loves, who God's made, um, whether it's walking up and down the street, and I was talking about this in Sunday school, handing out water bottles, or just saying hello to people. Or whatever it is, God wants us to live into opportunities to make His grace known. I want to encourage you to think about how is God so shaping your heart as the one who is gracious and is a mighty warrior and takes delight in you? How is that being reflected in your heart towards others, your, your husband and your wife and your children and your community? You know, one of the ways you can know you're struggling to believe this is true is if you really don't care about expressing this towards anyone else. As those who rest in God's love, it creates in us desire, creates in us a desire for others to experience that love. You know, may God remind us of His grace this week, that we might live into it and see one another experience that grace as we interact with each other. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we know that in fact you are the mighty warrior. The scriptures are clear that before you there's nothing that's hidden. But there's a day coming where everything will be uncovered. And that terrifies us until we remember that you are the one who suffered the curse for us, that we might be the recipients of a promise of a mighty warrior who delights in us and seeks to save us and draw us to himself. One who doesn't want us to spend our lives being rebuked and in shame, but spend our lives as those who are resting in the fact that you delight in us. Lord, I pray that even today, you might enable us to understand that that's your posture towards us, that we might receive your grace and that you might enable us by the power of your spirit to express that grace towards each other as we live into your kingdom in, as your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.